First John chapter 3, we're looking at verses 4 through 12. Um, this is an interesting passage. This is a difficult passage. This is a lot of passage that some people, or a passage that some people use to believe and talk about a doctrine called entire sanctification. Uh, the belief in Christian perfectionism, that we can get to the point in the Christian life where we don't sin anymore. And it seems to be, I know, I hear the, cor- the corporate gasp, like, what? Um, it's actually a, a, a doctrine that's making a little bit of a revival right now. There's some people in our church who believe that at this moment. And this text would be the primary text that they use to kind of uh, justify that belief. I don't agree with that, which is the question mark. And so we're going to kind of try to see what this text says, because it does seem to say that Christians won't sin. So it either says that or it says something else, and we're just not understanding it rightly when we think about that. So we'll try to sort that out. It starts in uh, verse 4 and goes through verse 12 of chapter 3, but we'll start reading in the first verse of chapter 3 for a little context. We covered this in the previous sermon. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, New American Standard says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we are now the children of God, but it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. That's talking about the doctrine of glorification when Christ returns and we get our new bodies and we're done with the presence of sin and we're in glory with Christ either at death or the coming of the Lord. I'll take either one at this moment. Either one is happy for me. When we die or when the Lord comes again, when we see him face to face, we'll be free from the presence of sin. We'll be in glorified bodies. No more sinful nature. Be like Christ in that way. Verse three, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, Jesus in his return, purifies himself just as he is pure. The Christian sanctification, right? Choosing righteousness, rather than sin, because Christ is returning and we want to be found living rightly when he does. Now, our text for today starts in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Hmm. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is a message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. This is God's word. You can see how it's difficult, so let's pray. 
Lord, we just ask that you'd give us clarity as we study your word. That you would help us to rightly interpret it and then live rightly in light of it. We need your help for that, Holy Spirit. We're trusting that you would lead us and we're trusting the tools that you've given us to think critically and examine scripture in light of scripture and look at it in context and the meaning of words and all these things. Lord, we want to get your word right that we might get following you right. And so we ask that you'd help us with that. And we ask that you would just make us of one mind and one accord, that you lead us in correct doctrine and that in that our lives would bring you much glory. And... Uh, Lord, you know, I've confessed before my brothers and sisters how off I feel right now in this week. And so I just ask for your help to preach. It seems overwhelming right now to me to do this, but I thank you for the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And pray that this preaching will be a demonstration of the power of the Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ. You give us understanding and hearts and minds that want to obey you and live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, remember, John is writing to this group of churches because there was some disagreement about the identity of Christ and what it meant to follow Christ, right? There were some within the church, we've been calling them the opponents, who ceased to believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They were proto-Gnostics, which means they were the forerunners of Greek Gnosticism, which there's a whole lot that goes to that, but to kind of break it down, what they were doing was their, their thoughts were being influenced by um, sort of Greek dualism, which said things of the spirit realm are good and matter is bad. And so as they took this sort of dualism into Christianity, they thought, well, God is spirit and God is good. Matter is bad. Therefore, it doesn't make any sense to us that God would have incarnate incarnated, draped himself in humanity, come in the flesh in Jesus Christ because the flesh is bad. So God wouldn't have done that. So it only appeared that Christ came in the flesh. He didn't actually come in the flesh is what they started thinking and, and spreading in the church. And that's a problem because the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the primary doctrine of Christianity. If you don't believe that Christ came in the flesh, you don't have historic, faithful, biblical Christian doctrine. But there's some other practical implications for that. If you don't believe that Christ came in the flesh, then Christ didn't die in the flesh on the cross. There is therefore no atonement. So they began to deal with this in a couple of ways. One of the ways that they dealt with this was to claim that they were without sin. And we have Gnostic documents from later on in the second century where they claimed, you know what, we're beyond that whole sin thing. We don't sin anymore. We're not like those other people, even people in the Bible that sin. We don't sin. So the atonement is not a big deal for them. That was one of the errors that they saw in light of, or one of the ways that they thought erroneously about sin. The other one was to just minimize sin or make it insignificant. Again, influenced by that false dualism of the spirit is good, the material realm is bad. We've been born again, they would say, as Christians. We're now spiritual beings. We've been made spiritually alive. What we do in the spirit matters. What we do in the flesh doesn't matter at all. So we can still follow Jesus, but live sinful lives in the flesh. What happens in the flesh doesn't matter. What matters is we've been born again spiritually. And you know from our study of 1 John that John's been dealing with these things. He's saying, no, sin is real. If we say that we have no sin, we're kidding ourselves. And sin really matters. Sin is not insignificant. 
It's not meaningless what you do in this body. We follow Jesus in this body. It's very important that we live lives that are pleasing to God in this body, in this flesh, in the here and now. So he's trying to deal with some of those misunderstandings in the church. We've been following that. And now, after saying, look, in the beginning of chapter three, Jesus is coming again. In light of Jesus coming again, we want to live rightly. All those who have their hope fixed on Christ's return, right? Where he'll set right everything that's gone wrong, where he'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Everybody that's looking forward to that, verse three, chapter three, purifies himself even as he is pure. In light of Christ coming again to establish the fullness of his kingdom, remember the metaphor we've been using, we're living in the dawn, right? The, the sun is rising, but it's not yet fully come. Jesus came, but he's coming again, right? But there's this darkness that's getting pushed back as the light does, and there's all this gray area, and culture wants us to live in the gray area. But John is telling us to walk in the light, in light of the fact that Christ is coming again, that the light is invading the darkness, that everything that is dark will be dealt with and judged and done away with. There'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. In light of Christ coming again to do that, let's live in a way that is representative of that now. Everyone has this hope in themselves. His return purifies himself. We want to live in consonance with that. We want to live congruently with Christ who is righteous and is coming again to set up his righteous kingdom. We don't want him to return and we're living lives where we have our hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. You know, that proverbial saying, get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. We want to live lives that are glorifying to God because he could return at any moment. Right? We got that? Amen? Amen. So he's exhorting us to righteous living. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, little children, I'm writing to you that you might not sin. He's saying to Christians what we ought to say to each other, sin less, obey more. That's what he's saying. Then he says in verse 4, third chapter, our text for today, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Now, when he's talking about practicing sin and being lawlessness, he's talking about the idea of rebellion. Lawlessness meaning rebellion to God, rebellion to God's word, rebellion to God's truth. Everyone who practices sin is practicing rebellion, right? Because obedience and submission would be Righteous living, following Jesus, living the way that he wants us to. But if we're practicing sin, we're practicing lawlessness, rebellion against God. Okay, he's going to draw some hard lines here. He's going to draw some hard lines. Rebellion to God. Everyone who practices sin is walking in rebellion to God. Now that word practices is important. In the Greek, it's in the present active tense, which means an ongoing habitual sort of thing. We get that. That's what practice means, right? Anybody here ever practice anything? Like the flu or surfing or, you know, we we practice stuff. If you practice something, you give yourself to it. You do it over and over. You're intentional about it. You engage in it. You give it attention and effort. Anyone who practices sin intentionally engages in it, makes it the habit of their life going after it, is rebelling against God. So far, so good. No problem. We get that, right? Right? 
Okay. Then verse 5. He says, and you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Now he's wanting to reason with the opponents and with his Christian audience. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Jesus appeared to take away sin. Sin, practicing sin, is rebellion against God. Jesus came to deal with that rebellion, to take away sins. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away. Yes, good job, church. That was a good response. That was so fun. Let's do it again. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River? Behold, the Lamb of God who so proud of you guys. Yes. In what ways does Jesus take away the sins of the world? Three ways. He takes away the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Three ways, three tenses. He has taken away the penalty for sin. For those who believe in him and put their faith in him, we are freed from the penalty of sin, the debt of sins. We're free from the wrath of God, the certificate of debt that was hostile to us, right? Spoken of in the book of Colossians. That debt that we incurred in our rebellion, Jesus on the cross paid the price for it. When we put our faith in him, then the penalty of sins is taken away from us. We're no longer guilty before God, even though we've been in rebellion. We're declared innocent because Christ paid the, Christ paid the price for our sins. Amen? Amen? Past tense. He has taken away the penalty of sins. What else does he take away? The power of sins. Now, this is a present tense thing. This is an ongoing experience in the life of the Christian. Right? Romans chapter 6 says that we've been given a new nature that is alive to God. We are previously dead to God, Ephesians chapter 2, and alive to the enemy and alive to sin. But when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're given a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. We have a new nature that is alive to God that is no longer mastered by sin. The power of sin has been broken in the life of the Christian so that we're no longer mastered by it. But just because we have a new nature does not mean that we are yet free from the old nature or the sin flesh. Paul made this clear in Galatians chapter 5, where he says the spirit wages war against the flesh. He made this clear in Romans chapter 7, where he said, I know the right thing to do, but I find myself doing the wrong thing over and over again. There's this battle waged in the flesh, right? There's this battle going on in us. Is this anybody's Christian experience? Okay, we, we, we get this. So we, the power of sin has been broken by the cross of Jesus Christ and we are daily being saved from the power of the sin. Someone answer your phone or press stop or something. Oh, it's okay, no problem. No problem. This is a daily experience for the Christian, right? Aren't we daily relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness, not to be mastered by sin? Sin is always wanting to, again, bring us under its mastery, but we have a new master, Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We have a new nature that's alive to God, that wants to and is able to practice righteousness. It's a daily experience of the Christian struggling through that. Present tense have been saved from the penalty of sin, are daily being saved from the power of sin, will be saved from the presence of sin. 
right? Future tense. Will be saved from the presence of sin. That's not yet. Is that not abundantly obvious that that is not yet? Right? The enemy is still alive and well in the world. Sin is still rampant in the world. We have not yet been saved from the presence of sin. That is part of the redemptive work of God. We will be saved from the presence of sin, either at death or when he comes again. Again, either one of them is fine with me at this moment. But then, and not before, we will be free from the presence of sin. And our redemption will be complete. Free from the penalty, free from the power, and free from the presence, and free from the old sinful nature, now a glorified body that's alive to God, And so we don't struggle with sin anymore. We won't struggle with sickness anymore because sickness has to do with sin. There won't be any more death because death entered because of sin. That's future tense glory. So he says, everyone who practices sin is practicing rebellion against God. And you know that Jesus appeared to take away sins. The penalty of sin, done. The power of sin, daily. The presence of sin, coming. And then he says, and in him, Jesus, this is the second part of verse five, there is no sin. That's important to remember. Jesus is the only one who doesn't have sin. This is important to get for this text. Jesus is the only one who doesn't have sin, right? He's the only one who was able to pay the price for our sins because he didn't have his own sin. Jesus is a sinless one. That's an attribute of God. That's part of the deity of Christ. In him, there is no sin. He's the only one. Now, Verse 6 is where it gets a little sticky. Verse 6 says, No one who abides in him, that is Jesus, sins. Wait a minute here. No one who abides in him. We talked about in our previous teaching what it means to abide in Jesus, right? We talked about that. It means to dwell in, to stay connected to, right? to keep our lives connected to Jesus, to continue to follow him. Nobody who abides in him, nobody who's a Christian, nobody who abides in him sins. And then it says, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. It appears that he's saying, if you are a true Christian, you will not sin. If you just read it in a vacuum, that's what it says. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And so some people take this to teach this idea of entire sanctification, that it's expected of the Christian that we get to a point where we don't sin anymore, that this is part of our redemption. This is part of the Christian hope. My argument is that that Scripture does not teach that, and this text doesn't teach that. Why do I think that? For a few reasons, 10 to be exact. Number one, (laughs) if you turn back to the first chapter... John already said in verse 8, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he already said, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, either John does not mean that the Christian will get to a sinless state Or John is bipolar, wacky, crazy, fully contradicted himself a few sentences later. Right? Those are the only options. Because it said in chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we're kidding ourselves. Now in chapter 3, he says, okay, well, if if we're true Christians, we're not going to sin. 
either there's something that we're not quite getting there or he's muy loco. But he's not muy loco. This is the word of God. So we need to ter- interpret scripture in light of scripture. If he already said we're going to sin, right? He said in chapter 2, verse 1, Little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins. He already said we're going to sin. But it's understood as part of the Christian experience. Paul would corroborate that. Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, well, we have a new nature, but in Romans chapter 7, gosh, I'm struggling with doing the right thing. Galatians chapter 5, gosh, there's this war going on. Walk in the Spirit. You won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. So because of what John already said, I don't think he's trying to teach entire sanctification or Christian perfectionism. The second reason I don't think that is the reason that John was writing. He was writing to correct two misunderstandings about sin, as I already said. The idea of sinlessness in light of misunderstanding the incarnation. He dealt with that, right, in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. And the idea that sin is insignificant. What matters is the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. So I could follow Jesus in the spirit and do what I want in the flesh and it's not a big deal. He's speaking to that very error. He's saying, no, if you abide in Christ, you're not going to continue in sin. If you're following Jesus, sin is not going to be insignificant to you. That's the point that he's getting at. Okay, so he's dealing with the opponents who are minimizing sin. He's saying, no way. Following Jesus doesn't allow us to minimize sin. It makes sin all the more repulsive to us. The more we see Jesus, the more we understand about Jesus, the more we grow in Jesus, the less we want to sin, the more we want to be like him. That's what he's getting at. And the opponents that he's addressing were separating salvation from morality. And John is saying, you can't do that. It's true that we were not saved by good works, but it is true that we have been saved for good works. Amen? So I don't think he's teaching perfectionism here. The third reason I don't think that is because of the present tense Greek verbs used in 1 John chapter 3. We already talked about present tense in the Greek is not necessarily the same as present tense in the English. We already talked about how that word practices was in the present tense. Well, here in verse 6, the word sin is a present active participle. What that means is he's saying those who continue on in sin habitually, they make a practice of it, as he already said in verse 4. That's what he's referring to. He's not referring to the Christian who sins on occasion, right? That's not, that's not what we're talking about. He already said in chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, who paid the price for our sins. He's talking about lawlessness from verse 4, rebellion to God, choosing to practice sin. The New Living Translation, the NIV, help us with the translation a little bit of these tenses. Go ahead. It says, anyone who continues to live in him, there's a good translation of the present active tense of the verb abide, anyone who continues to live in him. Okay, it's not a one-time thing. You didn't like, I'm abiding in Jesus, now I'm not. Anyone who continues to follow Jesus will not sin. That's also in the present active. Comes out here in the next phrase. But anyone who keeps on sinning, practices, pursues, it's the habit, it's the tone and the tenor, it's the desire, it's the course of their life, doesn't know him or understand who he is. He's still drawing some hard lines. We are not taking the fangs out of this passage. He's still drawing some hard lines. NLT, help, or excuse me, NIV helps us again. 
No one who lives in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. That's a faithful translation of the verb in the right tense, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The tenses of the Greek verbs are important because they help us to understand what John is saying. He's not talking about one-time sins. He's not talking about the Christian that's fallen into temptation or any of those things. He's talking about practice, tone, tenor, habit, intentionality, pursuit. He's saying, he is saying this, you are either pursuing after Jesus or you're not. He is saying that. But if he was saying that Christians will not sin at all, then that would have to be true for all Christians at all times. Because look at verse 9, and this is my fourth point. In verse 9, it says, no one who is born of God practices sin. Well, you can't be a Christian unless you're born of God. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? You're born again. You're made brand new. You have a new nature. So if what John was teaching in verse 6 is that we can get to the state of perfection, entire sanctification, then that would be true of all Christians. Anyone who is born of God doesn't practice sin. So then I'm a Christian. I don't practice sin anymore. That's, That's not what he's saying. If he was saying that, and this is my fifth point, then why would we have the whole of the New Testament that's always encouraging us to righteous living? Why would we have Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Why would he have him saying in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, my beloved, be imitators of God in all that you do? Why would we have all these exhortations to holy living in the New Testament constantly calling us to repent of sin, turn from sin, and be obedient to Jesus if it was just a matter of you're born again and now you don't sin anymore? That can't be what he's saying. That would be alien to the rest of the New Testament. That can't be the correct interpretation of the passage. My sixth point was Romans chapter 6, which we looked at, which says, look, you have a new nature, therefore... Don't let sin reign in your body. Paul doesn't say in Romans chapter 6, you have a new nature. You no longer have any flesh nature. Sin's not a problem. You'll never sin again. He doesn't say that. He says, you were slaves to sin. Now you have a new nature and the power of sin in your life has been broken. So you can actually not let sin reign. You can actually say no. And he tells us to do that in Romans chapter 6. Why would he be telling us that if it was just an issue of, hey, I'm born again and I'm going to be entirely sanctified and never sin again? Why then Romans chapter 7? And this is my seventh point. Why then Paul in Romans chapter 7 saying, I know the right thing to do. It's abundantly clear to me and I want to do the right thing as a follower of Jesus, but I find myself over and over again doing the wrong thing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. Paul talked about the struggle between the new nature and the old nature, which will one day be done away with when? Either at or when Christ comes again. You guys are awesome. One of those two times it'll be done away with, but right now that's not our experience. Right now is we are daily needing to be saved from the power of sin. In fact, it is a clear teaching in the New Testament that the Christian will on occasion continue to sin. Romans chapter 7, Paul made that clear. Paul the apostle, like, pretty awesome dude. What about Jesus? Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. The disciples come to us and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he says, here's how you pray. 
He says a few things, and then he says this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. If Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, had intended or expected that a Christian who was born again would be entirely sanctified in this lifetime and not sin in this lifetime, why would he teach us to daily pray, forgive us our sins? The Christian life is daily reliance upon God. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Daily, that's a daily prayer. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John said in consonance with that. What about James? James was John's buddy. Remember, James, John, and Peter. Oh, different James, sorry. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who was also, for sure, a a buddy. Getting my, help me. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would have known John and who both together would have heard the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he says in his third chapter, second verse of his epistle, we all stumble in many ways. He's talking to Christians. He's saying, look, we all blow in all sorts of ways. We're all in the process of sanctification. If you would expect anyone to say, hey, you know what? I got there, dude. I'm fully sanctified. I don't even sin anymore. You, you would think it would be James, like the half-brother of Jesus. He's like halfway there. <laughs> or Paul, right? You expect Paul to be saying, yeah, dude, I reached it. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, I haven't reached it. I got to forget what lies behind and keep pressing on for Jesus Christ. I got this struggle going on with this old nature. I'm so thankful for my salvation. You think it would be John, who was the apostle of love, who was the only one ever pictured in the gospel snuggling with Jesus, who outlived all the other disciples. If anyone was going to be entirely sanctified, it would have been John. We expect him to be saying at the end of his letter, look, I'm not going to write to you guys about sin. Sin, not issue. If you're born again, you're entirely sanctified. You're not going to sin anymore. You don't have the fleshly nature anymore. It's clearly not what he says. It's clearly not what this passage is teaching. Furthermore, my ninth point, which is just a sub point to my first point, the experience of God's holiness reveals our continued sinfulness. I would simply argue this, the more we get to know God, the more we realize our own sinfulness. Even though we're new creations. Amen, Linda, right? Linda, she knows. I know. You know who else knew? Isaiah the prophet. Think of Isaiah the prophet. Like, Isaiah the prophet. But when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, what did he say? Oh yeah, there's God in all his holiness. I'm totally holy too. No, when he saw God revealed in his holiness, he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is a great prophet to Israel whose lips were used by God on a daily basis. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I have seen the king. When he saw God in his holiness, it didn't affirm his own holiness, it affirmed his sinfulness. That was also the experience of Job. Or think about Job. At the beginning of the book of Job, Job is pictured as a righteous man who's pretty good at obedience. Even God is boasting about Job. Even God says to the enemy, hey, have you checked out Job? Job's like doing the thing. Job is awesome. Right? And he's like, yeah, Job is 
more or less done everything right. You get to the end of the book and Job says this to God after seeing God in his glory. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He says, I'm not going to argue my own merit anymore. I'm not going to talk about what's unfair. I'm not going to talk about everything that I did right. Now that I've seen how righteous you are, God, I retract everything I ever said and I repent in dust and ashes. And that would be consistent with what is my 10th point, the Christian's experience. We do not look to form doctrine from our experience, right? We got that. We don't say, well, here's what my life has been, so this is what the Bible must mean. But in some way, our lives should affirm doctrine. This is what the Bible says. This is the way I see my life going by the work of God. And I just got to say that I have never met a person who is an entirely sanctified Christian. Have you? Honest question. I don't want to offend anybody. There are those in our church who claim, look, entire sanctification. Sin flesh, not an issue more. New creation. I just got to say, I've never met anyone in my life who I looked at him and said, now there's someone who doesn't sin. And John would say the same thing in the fifth verse. Jesus is without sin. He's the only one. The Christian experience isn't that, well, when we mature more, we sin less necessarily. There may be some ways in which that's true and that should be true, but isn't it also true that the more we come to know the Lord, the more we're aware of our sinfulness? Isn't that also true? Isn't it part of what it means to be a Christian and grow in the Lord is that he is progressively in his kindness revealing areas in our lives that were previous blind spots? That's the progressive nature of sanctification. Look what God doesn't do. This is so nice of him. The day you become a Christian, he doesn't reveal to you the full depth of all of your hidden sin. How nice of him. Because he knows it all. What if he did that? What if he just put it all on display for you at once? He doesn't do that, but he reveals to us areas and blind spots and sin and rebellion and transgression and inconsistency, and he reveals it to us. He convicts us about it by his Holy Spirit, and our new nature responds and says, yes, right, I believe that that is wrong, and this is the right way, and I want to follow Jesus. And we confess that, and he cleanses us of that sin, and we repent of that, and he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to walk in a new way. And then once we get victory over that one sin, we're done and we have no more sin. No! (laughs) Then he goes, okay, good job, daughter. Good job, son. Now let's talk about this. Oh. And then in his kindness a few years later, what, 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 what about this? And there might come some point in our lives where we're able to say, well, I don't, I don't know, I don't commit adultery anymore. I don't get drunk anymore, or I don't slander people like I used to, or I'm not cheating on my taxes, or I'm not stealing. Those are just outward manifestations of something called the heart, and God looks on the heart, right? God looks on the heart. So when we think, gosh, I'm, I'm not killing people, I'm doing awesome, <laughs> God has a different standard. He looks upon the heart, and in his kindness, the more we see of him, the more 
potential growth we see in us. And that's a wonderful thing. John Murray, in writing about this, said, Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God, the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the more conscious he will be of the gravity of sin that remains, and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. Was this not the effect in all the people of God as they came into proximity to the revelation of God's holiness? So it seems abundantly clear to me that 1 John chapter 3 is not saying that Christians will never sin. It just seems abundantly clear that's not what he's saying for all those 10 reasons and more. But what he is saying is wonderful. That in this salvation, by the new nature that we've been given through being born again by faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the power of sin. Therefore, we shouldn't be expected to practice sin, continue in sin, pursue sin, because we have a new nature that wants to practice righteousness, pursue Christ, pursue holiness. And he's just drawing a hard line. Again, I'm not trying to defang this passage. Here's a hard line he's drawing. If you abide in Christ, the tone and the tenor and the pursuit of your life is not going to be after sin. It's going to be after righteousness. If it's not, the tone and the tenor, not talking about your low moments, but if your intent desires to do your own thing and see how much sin you could get away with, he'd say, you're not abiding in Christ. That's not what Christianity looks like. That's what he's saying. And in verse 7, he says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. He's saying to the opponents and to his Christian audience, don't try to make sin insignificant. And he's saying the proof is in the pudding because remember the opponents were claiming to be in the light, in Christ, following Jesus and yet living in sin. And he's saying that's, that, that's not the way that it works. The proof is in the pudding. The one who is practicing righteousness is following Jesus. The one who is practicing sin is following the devil and there's no third way. There's no gray area. You see, John wants to do away with a gray area, right? We've been talking about living in the tension of the dawn. That's what it is. We are living in the tension of dawn where the sun has come, but the sun is not yet fully here as it will be at the second coming, but it is dawn. So the light is coming and the light is here and the light is pushing back the darkness. But when the light pushes back the darkness, it creates this gray area. And culture says, live in the gray And John says, live in the light. 
I'm not going to let you live in the gray area. You're either practicing righteousness or you're practicing sin. If you're practicing righteousness, you're abiding in Christ. If you're practicing sin, you're following the devil. Those are hard words. Let me tell you why those are hard for some of us. Because we're living in the gray. When you live in the gray, things like this are hard to comprehend. And John is just doing us a wonderful service by saying, don't live in the gray. The light has come. Walk in the light, even as he is in the light. You see, our hearts in turmoil when we begin to love the gray. I know what it is to love the gray. I know what it is to want to get away with as much as I can. And John is doing us a wonderful thing by calling us away from the gray. John's a pastor. We're sitting in his office and we're telling him about our sin and the stuff that's going on. And he, with love in his eyes and all the experience of decades following Jesus, is looking at us in our eyes and he's saying, son, Get out of the gray area. Follow Jesus. You're right. Life is complicated in the gray area. It's hard to make sense of these scriptures if you want to be committed to the gray. I'm calling you into the light. Don't practice sin. And you say, but Pastor John, you don't understand my addictions. Pastor John, you don't, you don't understand my wounds and why I do this. Pastor John, you don't understand how badly he hurt me and why I hold on to this bitterness. Pastor John, you don't understand how unfair life has been to me. And with love in his eyes and a heart that has followed Jesus for decades, he looks you in the eyes and he says, I understand. But let me just make it simple for you. To abide in Christ is to practice pursue, be intent on, give yourself to righteousness. The other way is to follow after the enemy, calling you out of the gray. And that's what he says in verse nine. No one who is born of God practices sin. There's that present active tense again. We'll continue to sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. His seed abides in him. He's using some metaphor there to talk about the life of God, which is in us as new creations. And what does a seed do? Think about a sunflower seed. We usually chew on them and spin them out. But if you take a sunflower seed at the right time, you put it in the ground and you give it a little water and a little sunlight and it grows up into the most beautiful, incredible, giant flower that looks up and follows the sun. Do you ever know that? Follows the sun all day long. He's saying, You're a Christian. God's seed is in you. Look up and follow the sun. God is causing you by his spirit to blossom into the image of Christ. That's looking up and following the sun all day long. His seed is in you. Therefore, you're not going to practice sin. When you are practicing sin, there will be discord in your heart because you have a new nature. 
and there's going to be the new nature, and you say, this is wrong. And the Holy Spirit, and you're saying, yes, this is wrong. And the Holy Spirit convincing you of why it's wrong and calling you to confess it. And when you confess it, he's going to be faithful and just to forgive you those sins and calling you to repent of it and turn the other way and follow him where you'll find that he empowers you by his Holy Spirit to obey. And in that is freedom because the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Disobedience is burdensome. Therefore, he says, the one who is born of God cannot sin. Cannot. Udunamai, meaning does not have the power to sin. Dunamis, power. There's a new power at work in the life of the Christians. A new power. We're living according to a different power, the power of Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his life in us. And so he says, again, drawing the hard line in verse 10, by this then, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Well, now he brings in a new element. John says, let me just get down to the nitty gritty here because we can argue about nuance all day long. We could talk about, well, was that really gossip or was that just a prayer request? Is that really bitterness or is that just righteous indignation? Is that really just, is that drunkenness or is that just Christian freedom? Is it really sin to look at her if I don't touch her? We can play games with sin all day long. He says, here's the deal. Honestly, in the end game, children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And one of the defining marks is the love of the brethren. If we don't love each other, how is it possible that we're children of God? He said, that's going to be the defining mark. You you can argue about whether it was slander or prayer request, but are you loving? You can argue if that was adultery or just looking at pornography, but are you loving your wife? We talk about those things all day long. Jesus said, you're going to know my disciples. It's not going to be gray area. It's not going to be ambiguous. You're going to know my disciples by their love for one another. Verse 11, for this is a message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the evil one and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Again, John, black and white here. Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. A pastoral word of comfort at the end. I didn't want to remove the fangs from this passage. I did want to correct some misinterpretation in my humble opinion of this passage. The misinterpretation is that Christians could be without sin in this lifetime. That's wrong, I believe. The fangs are this. We have made sin way too insignificant in this lifetime. And to follow Jesus means to forsake sin and to pursue righteousness. And none of us are great at that. That's the elephant in the room. We're all saying, yeah, I'm hearing you, but now I don't know if I'm a Christian. Here's my pastoral help for that. If you are struggling with your sin, that struggle is evidence of Christ's life in you. If you're struggling with sin, that is evident that you have a new nature that's alive to God and wants to obey Jesus Christ and is living according to a different master and a different power. 
you're struggling with sin and you want to get free from it, then you've probably been born again. The person that needs to worry is a supposed Christian who is indifferent to his or her sin. That's who John is dealing with, who is indifferent to his or her sin. Then you'd have to wonder, where am I at? Because if I'm born again, I have a new nature and God's seed is in me. And the Holy Spirit is working to make me more like Jesus. That God would give us grace for that. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. We ask that you would, uh, Lord, where there's any unclarity, bring clarity and doctrine. And where there's any gray area in our lives, just bring it out into the light. Thank you for calling us out of the gray. Thank you for conviction. Thank you for confession. Thank you for repentance. Thank you for the new nature and the new identity and the power of the Holy Spirit. And thank you for this loving family and community that we could look at each other and say, sin less, be more like Jesus. That's who you are. That's what God is working in you. Thank you that we really are brand new and can live in a brand new way. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Thank you that we are free from the mastery of sin. So teach us to live into the light. Christ, you are the light. And in that, discover great joy and obedience. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen.